But take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, this whole chapter, by the way, is really, it's the Apostle Paul's apology, not, I'm sorry, but his apologetic, I should say, towards the resurrection. And he starts off this chapter, and of course, in the original, it was just a letter, uh, but the editors broke it up into chapters to make it easier for us. But I think they did a fine job when it comes to this chapter because this entire chapter is really Paul's argument and treaties about the resurrection. If it never happened, why would we even go through the motions? And so in the beginning of this chapter, he says, Moreover, brethren, sisters, Christian, I declare unto you the gospel. The word gospel is the same word for good news. I'm sharing the good news which I'm preaching unto you which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, since you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I have also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So you want a good definition of the Gospel? Well, the Bible defines... The Bible defines the Bible. That's, a, that's the clearest definition of the, of the word gospel that I know of. The death, the burial, and the resurrection, according to the scriptures, this is the gospel by which you are saved. No additives, no preservatives, no GMOs, right? No, no hormones added. You don't need to make it better. Um, the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just kind of want to go in that order. Of course, this is Easter Sunday. It's the day Jesus rose from the dead, and we, you could celebrate this day every day because you have a resurrected, uh, abiding Savior that lives in your heart, and he couldn't live there if he didn't rise from the dead and just stayed in the grave. So we really live a resurrected life um, as a born-again believer, as new creatures in Christ and new creations every day. But this day... Specifically, we've set aside on our calendars and we look back 2,000 years where Jesus conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave and came out victorious to prove who indeed he claimed to be, God in the flesh, coming as a man to die for man as man and to rise again from the dead to give all mankind the hope of the resurrected promise, the Easter message that Jesus uh, is eternal. Now, Today I'd like to start with the death. I'm going to kind of go in that order. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. I haven't brought this out. I had to kind of dust it off. I haven't brought, I've never mentioned this here at this church. And it's been years. It's probably been like 10 or 15 years since I've read this. And I'm going to kind of edit it as I go along because it's a little bit lengthy. Um, but I feel, I feel like this is something kind of imperative to read on the topic of death, the death of Christ. Dr. C. Truman Davis, he's a physician, and he did a medical examination of the crucifixion. Has any of you ever heard of his treatise on this? Well, even if you have, it, it's probably been a while, and so we're going to visit it. As I'm, as I'm kind of editing as I go along, because it's a little bit lengthy, he says in the beginning, that the, that the known practice of crucifixion uh, was actually 
initiated and instituted by the Persians. And Alexander and his generals brought it back to the Mediterranean world, to Egypt, and then to Carthage, and then to other, um, and then the Romans picked it up and kind of perfected the art of capital punishment. The most painful way possible to not only publicly humiliate someone, but to publicly torture them in the slowest, most painful way possible. So he goes on to say, as I'm skipping way down, he says, the physical passion of the Christ began in Gethsemane. Of the many aspects of this initial suffering, the one of the greatest physiological interest is the bloody sweat. It is interesting that St. Luke, the physician, incidentally, is the only one to mention this. He says, in being in agony, he prayed um, the longer, and his sweat became drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. Every ruse or trick imaginable has been used by modern scholars to explain away this description, apparently under the mistaken impression that this just doesn't happen. A great deal of effort could have been saved, and the doubters consulted if they had only consulted medical literature. Though very rare, the phenomenon of hematidrosis or bloody sweat is well documented. Again, this is a physician, Dr. Truman Davis, who's writing this. He says, under great emotion, emotional stress uh, of the kind our Lord suffered, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing blood with sweat. This process might well have been produced, uh, marking the weakness and possible shock of the Lord Jesus. After the arrest in the middle of the night, Jesus was next brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. It is here that the first physical trauma was inflicted. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded Jesus and mockingly taunted him to identify them as each passed by and spit on him and struck him in the face. In the early morning, Battered and bruised, dehydrated and exhausted from a sleepless night, Jesus is then taken across the praetorium of the fortress Antonio, the seat of the government of the procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate. You are, of course, familiar with Pilate's action in attempting to pass the responsibility to Herod Antipas, the tetrarch of Judea. Jesus apparently suffered no physical mistreatment at the hands of Herod, and was then returned to Pilate. It was then, in response to the cries of the mob, that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to the scourging and crucifixion. There is much disagreement upon the, uh, or among the authorities about the unusual scourging as a prelude to crucifixion. Most Roman writers from this period do not associate the two. Many scholars believe that Pilate originally ordered Jesus to be scourged as his full punishment, and that the death sentence by crucifixion came only in response to the taunt by the mob that the procurator was not properly defending Caesar against the pretender who allegedly claimed to be the king of the Jews. So preparations of the scourging were carried out when the prisoner was stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. It is doubtful that the Romans would have made any attempt to follow the Jewish law in this matter, but the Jews had an ancient law prohibiting more than 40 lashes. The Roman legionaries uh, steps forward with the flagrum, or a flagellum, in his hand, which is a short whip consisting of several 
heavy leather thongs with two balls of lead attached to the end of each of these leather straps. The heavy whip then is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, his back, and his legs. At first, the thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and then finally uh, spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels in the underlining muscles. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken up by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin and the back is hanging in long ribbons of flesh, and the entire area is unrecognizable as a mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion, when it is determined by the centurion charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then united and allowed to slump to the stone pavement wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers then see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be the king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still need a crown to make their travesty complete. Flexible branches covered with long thorns, commonly used in bundles for firewood, are plated into place of a crown and then pressed into his scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding, the scalp being one of the more vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper and deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back. Already having adhered to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds, its removal causes excruciating pain, just as the careless removal of a surgical bandage would be, and almost as though he were again being whipped and the wounds once more being, uh, begin to bleed. And deference to Jewish custom, the Romans return his garments. The heavy crossbeam of the cross is then tied across his shoulders, and the procession of the condemned Jesus, two thieves, and the execution detail of the Roman soldiers headed by the centurion begins its slow, humiliating journey along the Via Della Rosa, which I had the honor and privilege to walk down in uh, downtown Old Town Jerusalem. In spite of its effort, his efforts to walk erect, the weight of the heavy wooden beam weighing up to 110 pounds, together with the shock produced by copious blood loss, is too much. Jesus stumbles and falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into his lacerated, already open skin and the muscles on his shoulders. He tries to arise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock until the 650-yard journey from uh, the fortress Antonia uh, to the Golgotha, or to Golgotha, is finally completed. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild analgesic mixture, kind of like an anesthetic. He then refuses to drink it. Simon is ordered to place 
the patibulum, which is the crossbeam on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backward in his shoulders against this crossbeam. The legionnaire feels for the depression in the front of the wrist as he drives heavy, square, nine-inch wrought iron nails through the wrist deep into the wood, not the palms, the wrist. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms up too tightly, but to allow some sort of flexation movement. The crossbeam then is lifted up in the place of the vertical uh, beam, and a titleist reading, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed into place. The left foot is now pressed backward against the right foot, with both feet extended, toes pointing downward. And the, these nine-inch nails are driven through the arch of each foot, leaving the knees moderately flexed. Again, they have this down to an art and a science. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down, the more, the more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode into the brain. The nails in the wrist um, are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight down on the nails through his feet, alternating between the wrists and the feet. Again, there is a searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatorsal bones of your feet, or the, of, the, of his feet. At this point, the arms uh, are fatigued. Great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the, the pectoral muscles, the chest muscles are paralyzed, and the intercoastal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs. And the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward and to exhale and to bring in some life-giving oxygen. It was undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered the seven short sentences recorded on the cross. The first one, looking down at the Roman soldiers throwing dice for his garments, he said, Father, forgive them, for they, they know not what they do. The second, to the penitent thief on his right hand, today you shall be with me in paradise. The third, he looked down at the terrified, grief-stricken adolescent John, the beloved apostle, and he said, Behold thy mother. Then looking to his mother, he said, Woman, behold thy son. The fourth cry is the beginning of, of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where tissues is torn from his lacerated back as he tries to move up and down against the rough timber of the cross just to get one short more breath. Then, the, then, the another, then another agony begins, a terrible crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. One remembers again in the 22nd Psalm, the 14th verse where it says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax and it is melted in the midst of my bowels. 
It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached the critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissue. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to, to grasp or to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus gasps his fifth cry from the cross, I thirst. One remembers another verse from, the, from Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves into my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. A sponge soak and sort of a cheap sour wine, which is the staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, is lifted up to his lips by a spear. He apparently does not take any of the liquid. The body of Jesus is now in extremes. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues, this realization bringing his sixth words and possibly a little more than a tortured whisper. He cries, it is finished. His mission of atonement has completed. Finally, he could allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses down his torn feet uh, on the nail that's through his feet, and he straightens his legs and takes a deeper breath and utters his seventh and last cry, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. It's a powerful examination from a medical point of view of the crucifixion of Jesus. So when we say Jesus died for our sins, it was free to us, but it cost him his life. And the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. So go to the next slide. I'm going to kind of Keep going. Well, yeah, that was where I was just at. Keep going. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, the silver or gold from your vain conversation received by the traditionary fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1.18. Go to the next slide. 1 Peter 2.2. Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree on the cross, that we, being dead to sin, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Go to the next slide. To the praise of his glory, of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Jesus shed his blood on the cross. And then lastly, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And if you were the last person, this would be the next slide, on planet Earth, Jesus would have still have come and did what he did for you. Although if you were the last person on Earth, who would have done all that crucifixion stuff? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of people involved in that. But he would have come for you. So, I'd be remiss not to mention probably the most popular verse in, in all of the New Testament, John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This next verse, Romans 5.8, I want to say this. Go to the next slide. If your wife, I'll just stick with the wives. If your wife knew everything there was to know about you before you got married, do you think she would have married you? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, right? You dirty dogs. You low-down yellow belly sap suckers. There's no way you would have pulled that off. All your dirty laundry, literal and metaphorical laundry, right? There's just no way you put your best foot forward to land that beautiful woman that you're so honored and privileged to be with. And then you slowly reveal to her who you really are after years. I think the unique thing about Jesus is he knew all of your sins, all of your dirty laundry. There's no way you could put your best foot forward. He knew all of the things that you've done and will do. He knew it all. And in spite of that, in spite of knowing everything bad and dirty and rotten about us, you can't hide, can't cover it up. Knowing all of that, Jesus said, I still love you, and I still want a relationship with you, and I'm still going to die for you. Because Jesus doesn't die for good people. He dies for his enemies. He dies for bad people. He dies for sinners like you and I. 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he that died for all, that he which... Should, that we should not henceforth live unto ourselves, but unto Jesus, which died for us and rose again. And so the love of Christ constrains us. The love of God motivated Jesus to come to the cross. And that's what, that's what kept him on the cross. And that's what got him out of the grave. And he could have just said he loved us from heaven, but he came and he demonstrated it by dying for our sins. So you have the death of Christ, the burial. Let's kind of speed up here a little bit. The burial. The burial. So in Matthew chapter 12, if you'll turn there, Matthew chapter 12, it might be on the screen, is it? I don't know why that gets all messed up when I convert it. Is there another slide where it has Matthew 12 on it, the verses? Probably not. I don't think I put them up there. So Matthew chapter 12. You'll recognize this. We're talking about, we talked about the death. This is the burial. We're talking about the burial part. The burial. Let's not pass over the burial. The burial is important. It was a sign that Jesus was who he claimed to be. So in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38, then a certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from you. Because you know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Jews seek after a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So he said, but he answered and said unto him, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it except of the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus said, okay, I'll give you a sign. Here's going to be the sign, and there's, there's not going to be another. This is going to be your greatest sign that I am who I claim to be. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days and three nights. So you thought that Sunday school story about Jonah and the whale, you thought that flannel graph thing where, you know, you put Jonah in the whale and then he goes in the three, you thought that was all kid stuff. Jesus said it's actually the greatest sign to point to who he is. You are a sign seeker? He said, I'll give you one. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so must, so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and an unused rich man's tomb. Three days and three nights. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it'll be up on the screen. He began to teach them that the Son of Man would suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Remember, Jesus said, hey, destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it up again. And they said, this took us almost, you know, 40-something years to build and you're going to build this up in three days? And they were having this three-day dispute. And Jesus said, oh, no, I'm speaking about the temple of my body. Three days, three days, three days. God cares about days. Evidently, God came in the Christmas event to earth in the size of the seed of a woman on a specific day. Galatians 4.4 puts it this way. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So there was a day when, when Jesus came. It couldn't be a day after Mary and Joseph were married and she was no longer a virgin because they do married people things, right? They consummate their marriage. There had to be a day where he came. There had to be a day when the temple was built. And it was. It hasn't been built yet. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Any would-be Messiah today is kind of after the fact because there needs to be a temple. There had to be a day when there's a genealogical record preserved by the nation of Israel. Jesus had this discussion with the Jews in John 5. Uh, yeah, John 5. He said, um, I come in my Father's name and you receive me not. Another shall come in his own name and him you will receive. Meaning, I come in my name and you can prove it because I have the genealogical records in the in uh, where the Jews store all that, and he could trace it in, in, the, in the royal lineage. He could, he could point to it. Anyone coming today, there's, there's not a day on the calendar where you could prove that. You could during Jesus' time. There had to be a temple. There had to be a genealogical record. There had to be uh, the Mary and Joseph, uh, a virgin. It had to be a day when there was crucifixion. You know the crucifixion was so brutal and so terrible that they've outlawed it. It's no longer a form of capital punishment. Neither is solitary confinement, by the way. We're supposedly have ended that. I don't know if you knew that, but, you know, side note. So there had to be a day. What I'm getting at is God was very specific when it came to the days. Jesus started his public ministry at age 30, a specific day. Remember when he entered, you know, that John the Baptist kind of, uh, Jen's listening to a great sermon recently about Jesus' coronation. Jesus wasn't taken into captivity many times before that. He eluded them. 
because it wasn't his day or his hour. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, which was last Sunday on Palm Sunday. It, exactly on that day, he came in to be observed for four days because in the Passover, in Exodus 12, it's on the fourth day after the lamb was out spot and without blemish. Then you kill it in the evening. Exactly the day. Go to the next slide. Go to the next slide. Oh, maybe I didn't put it up there. Is there a slide that has um, the days? There we go. So three days and three nights. So Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights. You can't get three days and three nights. I'm not going to be. I'm not trying to offend any Catholics. But Good Friday ain't happening. <laughs> I mean, observe it if you want, but if you do the math, it just doesn't work. I have no problem with people, you know, doing it, observing it. Uh, it just, just do the math. When the sun goes down in the Jewish calendar in that time zone, which that God only had one time zone because Israel is such a small place. When the sun goes down, it's the next day. Three days and three nights. Crucified on Friday, and then the, the sun goes down? Well, then Saturday, that's just one day. And then you're out of the grave? Like, that's not three days and three nights. I'm not here to make a fuss about that. I'm just saying, like, you could count. I know you could count to three. It's an easy thing to do. I don't know how we've been duped for so long. I just don't know. I don't get it. But whatever, you know, whatever. I think the main point I'm trying to make is not to undo religious tradition, which, you know, tradition, we all fall for. I think my point is more like this. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day which is Sunday, which is the first day of the week. The first day of the week, Saturday is the seventh day of the week. It's the last day of the week. When the sun goes down, it's the next day of the week, Sunday. And that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And so Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day. But here's the, here's the cool thing about this. It's a whole new week. Remember in God's creative act right in the beginning in Genesis 1, he spent a whole week, and he was the one that defined what a day is. How do you define what a day is? <laughs> Genesis. And so God created things. He said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then on the seventh day, he rested. The eighth day, which would have been a Sunday, which would have been a first day, would have been another whole week. If you're in Christ, the Bible says you're a new creation. And go to these Hebrew verses that were up there a second ago. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Rest is not found on a, a day called Saturday or the Sabbath on the calendar. Rest is found in a person named Christ. If you've entered into Jesus, you've entered into a whole new creative week. It's a new creation. And you're a part of this new creative thing. All the old, heaven and earth are going to pass away. But you're going to be with Jesus because you're in this new creative week. You're in the... We're on the resurrection side of everything. We're on the first day of the week, Sunday. That's why we come to church on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And this is the day that he rose. But it's a whole new creative week. 
You know, when God, when God rested after he, he did creation on the seventh day, he didn't go to sleep and just kick back and retire and be like, yeah, I'm done, I did my big deed for the week. He didn't do that. He was finished with creation, but he still, he still continued to work. Look, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God after he was, he was crucified, he was buried, he rose again, and then he ascended and he sat down, what he's basically saying is he's resting because there's no more work to be done for salvation. Just as creation was over and God rested from the work of creation, Jesus rested from the work of redemption because he finished it. It's done. So now, if we believe this, we enter into Christ and we have this rest that's found not on a day, on the, on the calendar. And I know people get weird about the Sabbath. If you're, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And you enter into Jesus, you're in the Sabbath rest because it's found in a person named Jesus. He that's entered in his rest is also ceased from his works as God did from his. Go to the next slide. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus, the invitation. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Amen. It's God's invitation to rest. So you have the death, the burial, and the good news. You're like, finally get to it, Neil. I'm here for Easter, not get to the resurrection. I've been here since five. And like you already know the end of this story anyway. <laughs> the most undisputed fact. Go to the next slide where it says resurrection. So resurrection. So 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to turn there. I read it this morning. But I just want to read it again, parts of it. I didn't read all of this. But starting in verse 12. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up if so be that the dead rise not for if the dead rise not then is not Christ raised and if Christ be not raised your faith is in vain and you are yet in your sins and anyone that's died as a Christian is perished I like verse 19 he says if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. <laughs> like if this is all you get, if this is the best, I get it why the world does this, why the lost people eat, drink, and be merry, and you know, let's build bigger barns. If this is all there is to life, this is it, right? This is, this is all you got. Let's, let's steal and manipulate and connive and work and get more stuff, and if this is it, you know, let's just be selfish, and <clears throat> there's no purpose in life, and there, you're going nowhere if this is it. But he says, because Jesus rose from the dead, you don't have to be of all people miserable like the world. Um, I'm going to fast forward, Adam. Go to this 
probably the last quote bubble, or it's not in a quote bubble, it's a white screen but it has a quote by Wilbur Smith. A lot of quotes. Yeah, there, thank you. It was the same Jesus, the Christ, who among many other remarkable things said and repeated something which, proceeding from any other being, would have condemned him at once as either a bloated egotist or a dangerously unbalanced person. That Jesus said he was going up to Jerusalem to die is not so remarkable, though all the details he gave about his death weeks and months before he died are together a prophetic phenomenon. But when he said that he himself would rise again from the dead, the third day after he was crucified, he said something that only a fool would dare say. If he expected longer the devotion of any disciples, unless he was sure that he was going to rise, no founder of any world religion known to men ever dared say such a thing like that. And let, go to the next slide. And this is easy. Dead religion, Muhammad. You know the cube? Have you ever seen the big clock? It's, it, like, the, the, arch, uh, the architecture is phenomenal in Mecca. The big clock tower, largest, largest tower clock in the world. Look at it. It makes, it makes skyscrapers that sit next to it, they look like outhouses. Look at it. So that billions of people gather there in Mecca, and in the box in the middle of where they're gathering is a meteorite. Did you know it was a rock? But if you were to go to the, the grave, which billions of Muslims do, of Muhammad, he's still there. Yet billions of people go. Billions. Buddha, which is an offshoot. Buddha came after Hinduism, incidentally. Buddha, you know, so left India, started something in another part of the world. But it doesn't matter if you're a guru or a Buddha himself. Um, dead in the grave. Confucius, dead in the grave. Constantine, founder of the Catholic Church, dead in the grave. Mary Baker Eddy, Charles Taz Russell, Char Charlie Darwin, Plato, Homer, Socrates, Gandhi, David Koresh, Joseph Smith, they're all dead. They're all dead. And they're all in their grave. Yet Jesus, if you go to his tomb today, he's not there. It's just, he's just not there. It's empty. And if Christ never rose again, we're still lost sinners on our way to hell. We have no hope of eternal life. The free gift of salvation is just a joke. Christianity is a sham. We should stop coming to church, stop reading our Bibles, stop uh, giving and tithing. Actually start doing that more because we're not doing very good financially. <laughs> we should stop preaching uh, to others that Jesus rose again from the dead if he didn't. I mean, why, sell it? Why, why say something that's false? We should just simply move on with our lives. So the last and final point, and we're, and we're really done here, is the gospel conclusion. Accept it or reject it, but don't mess with it. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. Look, it might be exclusive to the Bible and to our faith, but it's inclusive because it's a whosoever will, let him call upon the name of the Lord and they shall be saved. It's exclusive, but it's very inclusive. It's for anyone that would just hear the good news, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and you receive it, you get the, the benefit of the promise of the gospel, which is the free gift of eternal life. Galatians 1.6 warns, though, 
He said, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there'd be some that would trouble you and pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have uh, preached unto you, let them be accursed. As we said before, and so now I say again, if anyone preach any other gospel unto you than you have received, let them be accursed. The gospel, this is Adam's favorite verse, I, I think it was at one time. Romans 1.16, I don't know if it is anymore, but I have a rotating favorite verses too. But at one time, Adam said this was his favorite, and I love this verse in Romans chapter 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. The gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the gospel, we could accept it, we could reject it, but we don't mess with it. It's the power of God. We ought not to be ashamed about it either. It's the power of God to convert anyone that would hear it. And the gospel that never changed us was the gospel that never saved us, probably. The gospel is so powerful that it could change your life, change your trajectory, change your eternal destiny, change whether you spend heaven with God or hell without God. The gospel that didn't change you is probably the gospel that didn't save you. So I'd just check your own self. Do you have the gospel? The death, the burial, the resurrection. Has it been the power of God in your life to save you? Are you saved? So we just heard the eternal, unchangeable, everlasting gospel of God. Now what are you going to do about it? I'm going to conclude with Pascal's wager. I know everyone here is pretty much a believer, but I just wanted to throw this up. He's one of my favorite philosophers, and I know I've referred to him you know, from time to time. But you could do the math on the chart. I think it's pretty interesting. You just go, you know, if you believe and God exists, you go, you know, you go horizontal and then vertical, and then you just play it out. There's only four options there. You can play all four options. And as a mathematician, Blaise Pascal, he lived from 1623 to 1662. He was a French mathematician and a philosopher. He invented the calculator and the principles of the vacuum, as well as formulas that NASA still uses today to enter in and out of the atmosphere. So based upon mathematical probability, Blaise Pascal formulated an argument to show his scientific community and his you know, colleagues that it's rational to believe in God and irrational to deny him. The basic idea is that if we live our lives believing that God exists, at the end of our lives, we gain everything. But if he doesn't, then the believer loses nothing when they die. However, if one lives their life in rejection of God and he does exist, when they die, the non-believer loses everything. And even if they're correct and God doesn't exist, they still gain nothing. If he had a microphone, which he probably invented it anyways, he would have dropped it. <laughs> so the last and final verse, and then enjoy your family and Resurrection Sunday. So what have you got to lose? Here's how you gain everything. If you're here and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, you don't know. Maybe you've heard this a lot, but you still don't know. Well, here's how you gain everything. Go to the last slide. Romans 10.9. 
that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, all that means is confession is I, I agree with you. I agree. You're not telling something, something to God that he doesn't already know. You're, you're coming in alignment with God. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice the connection to the gospel there. You confess, I believe, and you believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead. There's this Easter message. It's the gospel message. For with the heart, someone believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And here's this invitation to, the, to any and all. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, let's do this. Let's stand to our feet. And we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. But I do want to say this. If you've never received the Lord Jesus, if you've never, you, maybe you've heard about Easter. Of course you have. You're American. It's hard not to. But maybe you've never connected the dots. That, that Easter really is wrapped up in this gospel message. This unchangeable, eternal, passed down through the ages for the last hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Jesus died. Jesus was buried, and then on the third day, Jesus rose victorious out of the grave like no one has ever done ever before. And he promises in the gospel, the good news, that he will give you this as a free gift if you by faith alone in Christ alone just believe it. That's it. So if you're here today and you never received Jesus, I, just, I would just ask that you would just if you want to, it's your choice. Did you say, Jesus, come into my heart and save me? Jesus, give me that free gift of eternal life. I believe in the gospel, and you'll be saved. It's the power of God into salvation to any that believes. Amen. Jesus, I thank you for this wonderful church. I know we're a little bit sleepy towards the end of Resurrection Sunday, but Lord, I just pray we'd have a wonderful day uh, with family and friends and whoever we're going to be fellowshipping with. And I just pray for those that couldn't be here, those that are traveling, the Nunezes. Thank you that Alvin and his son were able to come out. But those that couldn't come out, I would pray for them as well. Continued prayers for Debbie and her recovery and, the, and for them to find a house. Um, all the needs of the church, Lord, I know you're intimately aware of. The spiritual growth of the church, the numerical growth of the church. We'll, we'll trust you, Lord, as the head of the church. Uh, that you will continue to build the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And thank you for the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. It's in your name I pray, amen.